Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is Jen Lute Costella. Jen, what's going on? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm a little bit under the weather here. It's it's my flu. It's my Michael Jordan flu game. Uh, the playoffs are around the corner, so uh, we've got to do podcasts. There's no excuses. Well, you know, when someone poisons your pizza, you just you got to keep on marching forward. You know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so we're going to start off with. Uh, we thought we'd bring you in for this for a little Blackhawks Blues preview because uh, you're obviously following the Blackhawks pretty closely and can kind of provide some perspective on what's been, what's been going on with them this year. Yeah, so it should be uh, an interesting series, huh? We'll see if the uh, if the Blackhawks go back to their old hey, let's play some good hockey because it's the playoffs thing. Yeah, well, it's it's a fantastic kind of narrative filled matchup here because obviously in the Blues you have a team that's had years of great regular seasons, but whenever it gets to the playoffs for whatever reason, and I, I don't I don't know, you'll probably agree with me here, maybe you won't, but I think it's much more kind of a, a luck based, unfortunate thing as opposed to some sort of uh, inherent fatal flaw that they have as a team. Yeah, I really don't think it's anything. Um you know, that they're like a terrible team or something. I mean, most of the teams they've played over the last couple of seasons in the first, you know, round or something has been like Chicago, LA, you know, I mean, it's not like they've had some sort of cakewalk into the playoffs you know, or into the later rounds. Um, I think they are a really good team and, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if Chicago really can step it up enough to, um, to beat them. Yeah. Okay, well, let's discuss the Blackhawks. I mean, you kind of mentioned them sort of turning it on here and playing good hockey again. And it's weird because they're the opposite of the Blues in the sense that I don't think anyone really kind of cared what sort of regular season they had as long as they made the playoffs just because they've done so much winning over the years and they've built up so much equity with us that we're just like, we're at the point where I think I actually had you on the podcast a, a few months ago when they were struggling a little bit and we were both like, let's wait and see what happens when the playoffs roll around because uh, that's all. <laughs> ultimately yeah. when they're going to be kind of tested, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we talked about it before that, you know, they can go through times in the regular season where they they look absolutely just dismal, they look terrible, and you think, gosh, if this is the team that shows up in the first round of the playoffs, they're out. Um, and then, of course, they go into the playoffs, and, and it's like, oh, my gosh, how did anyone ever think this team wasn't going to go win the Cup or something? Um so yeah, it'll definitely be uh, an interesting test of that. I think if I think one of the things that that is their secret really to all of this is, you know, a they keep themselves ready all year long uh and maybe taking your foot off the gas a little bit during the regular season make sure you have a full tank for the playoffs. I don't know. Um but I think the thing about Chicago that that lets them uh turn it on in the playoffs and this is something I've kind of been recently looking at is that uh, the intensity necessary for the key points of their game, you don't really get until the playoffs, mm-hmm. particularly if you've been through it so many times like they have recently. Right. Um, because the thing that really struggles for them during the regular season when there's a perceived lack of intensity is, you know, recovering the puck in the offensive zone, um, clean zone exits out of the defensive zone. Those are the things that kind of are just like, eh. 
for them during right. the regular season. But their structures in place are to have aggressive, you know, puck recovery and aggressive um, stretch passes out of the zone or, you know, always controlling the puck out of the zone and that kind of thing. So once you add the intensity ingredient there, it's it's a lot easier for them to all of a sudden turn it on because it's something they've been doing all year. They just haven't been doing it, you know, with all that much uh, maybe motivation or effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons, too, why, you know, some nights you can tell they, they're really motivated and they look like world beaters. You know, you just, you just laugh at the game because you're like, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, why don't they play like this every night? Um, and I think that's the thing. It's that motivation factor to get them to play their system to the best they can play it uh, because the system is terrific and, and it's built to win games. Well, the thing that I wonder though is, uh, I don't know, I guess it's impossible to know until we actually see it play out, but it's whether uh, you can sort of lull yourself into a false sense of security by thinking, oh, you know, when we need to, we'll turn it on just because I, I was, I, we know that kind of how you're playing heading into the playoffs is generally a pretty good predictor of of uh, how the individual series will unfold. And I was looking last year, for example, the Blackhawks also kind of in their final 25 games of the year, their, their possession stats dropped a little bit, but it was definitely mm-hmm. not to the point where it has been this year, right? Like the difference between them yeah. and the Blues over the past 25, and obviously that's a pretty arbitrary cutoff, but is like, I think the Blues are a 55.5% possession team and the Blackhawks are down below mm-hmm. 49. And that's that's pretty right. steep. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's something to that or maybe it's just, you know, you clean slate in the playoffs and all of a sudden we're going to wind up looking silly forever doubting them. Well, you know, I think um, in addition to that whole motivation factor to to really exploit how good the structure of your team is, is the fact of like how effective can you be once you turn it on? Do you have enough talent on your team to make this work? And, you know, Chicago's um, defensive core has been uh, pretty shaky this year Mm -hmm. and it's not really clear who's going to play where and when, and is it just going to be, you know, the top three who are going to go in there and eat a giant number of minutes and how long can you do that? You know, like if somebody, God forbid, gets hurt or something like that, like, or just isn't playing very well, it's really going to hurt the team. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can turn it on in the playoffs, but uh, you may not be able to dial it up to the level that you need it at just because you don't have the horses to do that sometimes. Mm. Well, I think what, what people kind of overlook sometimes, and it's it, the same thing happens with Marc-Andre Fleury in Pittsburgh, I think, a little bit, where uh, it, it's a sort of a lose-lose situation for a guy like Corey Crawford, right? Because if the Blackhawks win, I, I, like a Patrick Kane or a Jonathan Taze is going to get, a Duncan Keith, they're going to get most of the credit for it. But if they lose, all of a sudden it's going to be, oh, you know, Corey Crawford just just let him down. He couldn't even hold the fort. And it's, it's so weird to me because you look at all the numbers this year, and he's really really been sort of the backbone of that team, right? Like Patrick Kane, I think is probably going to win win the heart and he's been prolific as a, as a scorer and there's no kind of taken away from that, but they've, Mm -hmm. there's been so many nights where they haven't for whatever reason, look like that team we've expected to see in years past. And he's really kind of been the reason they've been managing, managing to stay afloat. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, the the goalies always get a rough ride of it, which I think Marc-Andre Fleury has gotten in the past, too. Uh, and, you know, you really have to look at not only what kind of shots are they facing, but, you know, just what's the, like, kind of the motivation of the team at that point? Are they already, like, kind of beaten and just not putting the effort in or what's happening? And so when you put everything in terms of goals against on the goalie, that's that's pretty rough to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't think anyone can ever come out looking completely pristine um, regardless of how their team played, except for maybe like Tim Thomas a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, unless they just go completely lights right. out in the playoffs, somebody's always going to put it on their shoulders if they lose. Well, I mean, maybe not like a Henrik Lundqvist, for example, where, where we can pretty clearly see that the Rangers are nothing without him. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Obviously, like Pittsburgh this year is a very good team, um, regardless of who their goalie is. But of course, going to the playoffs, you'd like to have your best goalie in the net, you know, and healthy and ready to go. So hopefully, uh, hopefully for them, Flurry can, you know, recover some and, and be able to take his net back because I know they've had some rough patches in the playoffs before, but he's a good goalie. He mm. should be able to 
to get the job done. So I've got a question for you. I know you're sort of interested, like I am, in kind of breaking down these games into matchups and and certain micro things and evaluating it from that perspective. And I was kind of when I was trying to preview this series, I was wondering how I'm going to see it unfold. And I'm wondering up front, do you think we're going to see the Blues try to go with putting Steen and Bacchus up against Kane and trying to slow down his line? Or do you think it's going to be more evenly balanced? Or does do you think if they do that, that kind of opens the door for, for Taze, Hosa, and Ladd to potentially have a big series? Or how do you see that unfolding? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think they have to, they have to try and put one of their better uh, lines out there against uh, Anisimov's, you know, like crazy good production line. Uh, because if you can get a line that that can really um, be super solid two way line, like that Steen and Bacchus and those guys have been for the Blues, mm. um, I, I think that's when you can start to get some really good chances going the other way because you know, really creative players take a lot of risks. And if you have guys who can read that creativity, kind of pounce on those risks to make their own opportunities, it could work out for them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Chicago's uh, depth is uh, in terms of forwards is kind of ridiculous. Still, yeah. Yeah. even though they're not the same team they were last year or the year before that, they still essentially have, you know, a, a very similar structure that the top three lines are just going to go score, score, score. Mm-hmm. And then Kruger's line is going to go out there and, you know, keep the puck in in the opponent's end the whole time. And they're going to be like, man, when do we get a break? When Where's the bad line <laughs> right. that we go and get to go out there and play against the grinders? Um, but even the Blues' fourth line, you know, they're pretty good at recovering the puck and trying to keep possession and, you know, playing maybe not great scoring hockey, but playing hockey that, that makes it difficult for other guys to just um, – you know, do whatever they will uh, in in terms of possession. I think that, I don't know, I think it, pretty much anybody outside of the top line is going to have trouble with uh, Anisimov's line, though. Yeah, no, it'll be fascinating to see how that unfolds. I was, I was looking at the Blues lineup now, you were really talking about that, and they do have a really, really deep lineup, and then all of a sudden you see in the bottom right corner Ryan Reeves, and it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It, it makes no sense with, right. how, with, with how the rest of their team is assembled. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I obviously, um, I, I think Reeves does some stuff that I, I'm just thinking, my gosh, if you would stop worrying about, you know, being this tough guy, right. you could probably be serviceable on a fourth, you know, fourth line that's used for like possession and stuff. Mm-hmm. I know why the Blues like him. I mean, he's he's a heavy player. He hits all the time. And and if you use him deep on the forecheck, maybe that works for you. Maybe you get the puck back because somebody doesn't want to take a hit from that guy and they're going to move it a little bit faster, you know, to try and avoid that hit. And maybe they make a mistake. So, I mean, I, I see why they do it. I just think that um, if he would keep his focus on actually doing that job of, of retrieving the puck, um, he would probably be a lot more effective. Mm. But yeah, he definitely is, doesn't have the same credentials as, as some of the other guys on that team, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's an understatement. Uh, okay, so this is the moment of truth. Uh, it's, the, it's prediction time. So what do you, I don't know, have you had a chance to think about it yet? What do you, how do you see this series unfolding? Gosh, I wish I had like one game to see how they were... Oh, how they were going to come out, you know? Oh. I know <laughs> this is unfair. Um, I think I, I think that if the Blues keep playing like they're playing, I, I wonder if it doesn't go seven and come down to something ridiculous, mm. or, you know, some right. sort of ridiculous bounce or something like that. I really think this matchup is a toss-up. Um, I'd be shocked if either team just completely steamrolled the other. Right. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it's probably going to go six or seven games and be decided on something kind of bananas. Um, I'm going to say Chicago because if I say, if I say the blues, then Chicago is going to like go win the cup and everybody's going to be like, you are going to be out in the first round, <laughs> stupid. Um, but so I'm going to say Chicago in seven, but I, I really think that the series could go either way. I think both the teams are really good. And, and, you know, Vlad Tarasenko, God, good yeah, Lord, that guy okay. gets loose. Like, like I, it's it's ridiculous. I can't uh, I can't even imagine what would be going through the minds of Blues fans if it, if it did go to a game seven. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're gonna do well in this, where it's gonna come down to one bounce because we've had so much good luck over the past few years. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I 
they they really are a better team than their fate has given them uh, over the past several seasons in the playoffs because I, I think, um, I know, and that's kind of maybe the bummer about the playoff setup and the format that you have two really good teams playing each other so early when either of them could, could easily, you know, end up in a conference final or something. So it's it's kind of a bummer to see one of these really good teams go out so early. Well, especially when Dallas gets Minnesota. Not that Minnesota is necessarily going to be a total cakewalk, but I think the, the drop-off in competition there is pretty dramatic compared to this series we're going to see between these two teams. Yeah, I just I don't think Minnesota's offense can compete with Dallas's offense. Yeah. I, I mean, um, Dallas has some problems with dumping the puck out of the zone all the time and, and giving their opponents chances, but I just they're just not aggressive enough. Minnesota isn't offensively for me to think that they'll be able to outscore Dallas. I mean, geez, Pete, Dallas could score themselves out of almost any situation. So. Um, I'm kind of thinking Dallas comes out on top in that one. Yeah. Well, I I still am kind of, you know, I'm waffling on my pick here because I definitely think it's going to go six or seven games for sure. It's not going to be a route in either direction. And it's so tough because the Blackhawks, it's just so tough to pick against them at this point. You don't want to seem like an idiot. Right. And like, oh, I should have seen this coming. Like, what a, what a stupid mistake by myself. But it, I know. the Blues have been so much better lately that I'm going to give them they the have. slight edge. At the same time, though, uh, just purely as someone who works in media and kind of is always game for for seeing interesting stories i think if the blues lose in this first round it could be quite a hectic summer for them with potentially kind of if they decide to go in a totally different direction and get rid of hitchcock and let Backus walk as a free agent and maybe even trade shattenkirk while they still have some peak value there so this is really kind of a make or break uh postseason for them yeah i think so too you know and i think i think they have the beginnings um, with Tarasenko and Schwartz and um, Latera, I, I love that line. And I think I think they have this beginnings of some really nice offensive depth, and they have good defensemen. And you know, I really think that that team is on the brink of of really being able to do something. But it just you know, again, they keep running into the yes. eventual cup winners in the first round every year. So it'll, it'll really be interesting. I, you know, I think Ken Hitchcock is a smart coach. Um, and I know he's, you know, sometimes takes a lot of flack, but it would be a shame to see them walk away from him at this point, because I think he's, he's a smart coach. Mm. We'll see. I agree. Uh, hey Jen, thanks a lot for kind of taking the time to chat about this series. Uh, before you get out of here, do you want to plug anything? I saw that you kind of got back to writing about hockey a little bit, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, I did. I, I've been uh, doing a bunch of, of just kind of tracking on my own instead of for work stuff and, uh, you know, decided to write some stuff up because it I started just writing this thing up and it turned into like 14,000 words. And I was like, good Lord, no one's going to read that. Let me break this baby up here. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've just been kind of putting these out there. So, yeah, I've had some new stuff coming out and, and it's kind of fun, interesting. Here's a place to start to go somewhere else, uh, work that I've been doing. So. Hopefully, uh, everybody will read it. Cool. So everyone can uh, follow you on Twitter at RegressPDO, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to get you back on later during this playoffs, maybe if the Blackhawks are advanced, or if everything just goes completely wrong, we can come back and discuss how uh, how we didn't see it coming. Yeah, right, and how we were fools. Yes. So we were fools to believe in them. So, sounds good, Dimitri. Thanks for having me on. Of course. We'll talk soon. Okay. And joining us to talk uh, Penguins-Rangers is Adam Gretz from CBS Sports. Adam, what's going on, man? Not much. How you been? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. I'm excited to chat about this. I feel like this is a, a really interesting series just based on how different the two teams are heading into it. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because obviously this is the third year in a row they've played. And I think the past two years, the Penguins just... They, I don't know that they really matched up well with them. Right. Uh, they just didn't have the type of depth they have now. And they didn't really have an area where they could exploit the Rangers very much. Because, you know, you go back to the series two years ago and the Penguins forward depth was just so bad in that series where if, if Crosby and Malkin didn't score, nobody scored. And then you go into last year's series and the Penguins just had no defensemen. I mean, three of their top four guys were out and they really just didn't have a chance. And, you know, they have some injuries right now, but I think they're better equipped to handle them. And I think the Rangers team they're playing is not anywhere near as good as the past two they've played. Yes. 
Yeah, no, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I was looking at the uh, the past 25 games for both teams earlier today, and the Penguins are second in the league with a with a 56.7 percent score adjusted possession rate, which is which is absurd. That's like right up there with the Kings, and then the Rangers are all the way down 27th at 46. And the reason why that's funny is because you were mentioning it. I think two years ago in the second round, uh, it was it was flipped. I think it was a 10 percent gap nearly, uh, with the Penguins being at like 45 percent and the Rangers being way up as one of the best teams in the league. So it's amazing how far they've come in the, in the past two years. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was just looking at the, the, the forward line combinations the Penguins used in that series two years ago, and it was just unbelievably <laughs> bad. I mean, their third and fourth lines just got hammered. I mean, they, they had Tanner Glass and Craig Adams and Brian Gibbons and just all these guys that, you know, most of them aren't even in the NHL anymore. Hey, Tanner Glass is actually still in the series, I'll have you know. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it's just such a such a different team right now. And, um, you know, I, I think Mike Sullivan has them playing a style of play that, that fits the players they have. And I think they actually have the players that can play the way he wants to play. And it's just been a perfect combination. And, you know, everybody focuses so much on the coaching change, which obviously was a huge thing. Right. But the roster has changed significantly since then as well. And, you know, just bringing in guys like Carl Hagelin and, and Trevor Daly has been a really nice addition for them on the blue line. He's given them uh, the, the type of presence they didn't have at the start of the year where the, nobody could move the pocket. Yep. It was just, it was holding everything back. And, you know, they've kind of just, you know, reshuffled a lot of things. And, you know, they have all these young guys come up from Wilkes-Barre that have, that have really played well, you know, whether it's been Brian Rust or Tom Kunockle. And, you know, it, it's just a very different team right now in pretty much every way. Well, I remember when the daily trade happened mid-season. It was funny because a lot of people were instantly jumped sort of the appeal to authority with Stan Bowman saying, I'm pretty sure Stan Bowman knows what he's doing. He's been around the block a few times. And, and Trevor Daly, of course, didn't look very good during his limited time in Chicago. And he has been known to be a bit of a liability in his own zone. But my whole argument for the Penguin side of that trade was, uh, last I checked, Trevor Daly has a functioning pulse, which instantly makes him a top six defenseman on this Penguins team. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think he's exceeded even the most optimistic expectations. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned that he's, you know, at times he can maybe be a liability in his own end. And, you know, I had that, that, that thought too at the time of that trade, but I really haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, that they've kind of, you know, one of the things that I will say about Mike Sullivan is he puts his guys in positions to succeed and he knows what their strengths are. He plays to them. And he knows what their weaknesses are, and I think he avoids them. And, you know, I, I think that's been one of the big things that's helped Trevor Daly. Uh, I think that's been one of the big things that has helped improve Chris Letang since, right. he's, since Sullivan's been here. Because, you know, Mike Johnston, for whatever reason, seemed committed to making the Chris Letang-Ian Cole pairing work. Yes. And it just never worked. And I, I think that, more than anything else, held Letang back. And, you know, he, he's been pairing up. Uh, Latang's pairing with Crosby's line, which has just, you know, it, it's been dynamite whenever they're on the ice. And um, just all that stuff, it just adds up into a much improved hockey team. So I think the interesting kind of personnel decision for the Penguins uh, moving forward is how long it's going to take Evgeny Malkin to come back from injury and when he does, what they do with the lineup. And I think there's people that can sometimes get kind of carried away with this stuff and be like, look how good the Penguins are playing without Evgeny Malkin. They don't even need him. And of course, that's just blatantly not true. I mean, when he's playing at the top of his game, he gives them an extra wrinkle that they just can't, really can't kind of put together without him. But I think the... The question for our purposes that's interesting is when he gets back, do you think that they're going to put him on a third line with guys like, I don't know, Shiri and Bennett or who like whichever other kind of depth wingers they have? Or do you think they're going to try and eventually pair him back up with Phil Kessel and kind of front load those two lines? Yeah, that's the big question. And nobody really seems to have an answer for it in Pittsburgh. There seems to be a belief that they are not going to break up the the Kessel Hagel and Benino line mm -hmm. and I mean you know, right now it's hard to argue with that I mean they've been fantastic and you know Kessel and Hagelin have have really you know they, they've meshed well together Benino seems to be a nice fit on that line and for whatever reason Phil Kessel just seems to like playing with he, he likes to have his own line it seems and yeah. You know, you, you look at what he did all those years with Tyler Bozak as his center in Toronto, and, you know, the best he's played in Pittsburgh so far has been with Nick Benino. Um, one of the things I've kind of heard that they might consider doing 
is actually putting Malkin and Crosby together. Ooh, yep. Um, you know, there, there's there's kind of two schools of thought on that here. There's one group of people that think it never works, but the numbers don't agree with that. Right. Um, I mean, you know, when you look at what Crosby and Malkin have done together, it's just ridiculous stuff. I mean, they, they absolutely blow teams out of the water. Um, well, I mean, so, also in the past, they haven't really had that luxury of putting both of them on the same line, right? Usually right. it's been just the two of them and then a bunch of other kind of spare parts. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it's it's such a different team now where, you know, you kind of have more options than you had before. Um, you know, one of the things I, I don't like about trying to put him on a, quote, third line right. is somebody's going to play less than they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whether it's you know if, if you make Malkin's line the second line, no matter who he's with, and that means Kessel and Hagelin are going to play a little bit less. Right. If you make Malkin's line the third line, that means one of the top five players in the world is going to play a little bit less. And I don't think right. either one of those is an ideal situation because obviously you're better when those guys are on the ice. Um, so I, I mean, you know, hey, a lot can happen in the next couple of weeks. Maybe the Benino Kessel Hagelin line cools off a little bit, and they have a reason to put him back uh, with those two guys. Because it's not like that line suffered when Malkin was on it either. Right? Yeah. I think they they played very well together. Yes. And I think there was. I mean, it's funny we're having this this discussion now that when Malkin went down, there was a belief that that line would just you know fall apart because you know there was the thought that he was the one keeping it all together, mm-hmm. and they've just kept scoring. Yep. So. You know, a lot can happen. A lot can change, um, but it would not surprise me at all if you see Crosby and Malkin skating together at some point uh, before the end of the series. Wow! I mean, so from the Rangers' perspective, I saw on Twitter today that they're planning on putting Mark Stahl and Dan Girardi as a pairing, and then kind of that being their shutdown go-to pairing against Sidney Crosby's line. And I don't know. I mean, well, first of all, let me congratulate us for for going what eight eight ten minutes here without actually really discussing Cindy Crosby, which I feel, feel like is a is a first. But what do you, if you're running the the Rangers, what do you do to kind of game plan to try and slow this team down? Because we just discussed how they have two, three, four lines that can kind of come at you in waves, and there isn't much of a letdown from one line to the other. And it's not like the LA Vigneault is necessarily flush with great options to kind of try and slow them down. It's going to be tough. I mean, if you're the Rangers, you really don't have the personnel to get into a back and forth game with the Penguins, mm-hmm. um, especially with your defense. I mean, you know, with Ryan McDonough out of the lineup, I mean, if, who back there can can move the puck? I mean, you have Keith Yandel, right. but you know he can't play sixty minutes a night. Um, so it, it's really a tough spot. I almost wonder if they're just going to try to you know double down on you know packing it in. And just saying, okay, you know, hit us with what you have, and we'll see if we can, you know, wait for a mistake or something. Because I, I just don't see them having that ability to to slow those guys down. And you know, you, you mentioned that Girardi and they're they're talking about playing Girardi and Stall together. You know, those guys have not been a very productive pairing this nope. season together. And you know, at one time, I, I think a few years ago, those guys were probably very good defensemen, mm-hmm. but they have rapidly declined and you know age has not been kind to them and i think with their style of play uh that's going to be the case i mean they're they're just not gonna age well and um you know it, it would be a very i i think if i'm pittsburgh i would be pretty optimistic about that that matchup if, if it comes to that and it's funny because when when the rangers were in town um, in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago, somebody asked Mike Sullivan about one of the matchups that he was trying to get or one of the matchups the Rangers were trying to get. And, and Sullivan, he, he kind of sat there and thought for a minute. And he goes, you know, sometimes both coaches want the same matchups for, for different reasons. And right. I, I think that could be one of those cases right here where the Rangers think, okay, Girardi Stahl is going to be our shutdown pair. And Mike Sullivan might look at that and say, okay, you know, let, let's see what they can do against this guy. <laughs> Yeah, no, it definitely seems like uh, it's a, so much about the playoffs is kind of stylistic matchups and how the two teams mesh. And for the Rangers, while they weren't nearly as good with their underlying numbers as they were in the standings, there were still certain matchups where you could see them kind of faring well. But this just seems like the worst possible one with the uh, the combination of the Penguins' foot speed up front and then their uh, lack thereof in the back end. Yeah, and you know what's funny is. I was looking at the the individual matchup numbers, like how Crosby did against some of their defensemen this year. Hmm. And the, the the guy that had the most success against Crosby was actually Yandel. Right. 
Um, it was only it was only like twenty minutes of ice time, so I mean it's not like a, a huge um, you know sampling there. It's not a ton to go on, but he's the one that kind of held Crosby in check the most. But I, I'd be surprised if you you actually see them go in that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't necessarily find that to be particularly surprising. I feel like that's generally the case where people sometimes struggle with the idea of what makes a good defenseman. And right. like Yandel, just you know, being capable to get the puck out of his own zone instantly gives him such an advantage right. over a guy like Girardi, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he's he's yeah. the only guy that does that on that blue line, right? Right. Now. Yeah. No, that's a problem. Um, okay, so I got a I got a fun little stat here for you that I kind of dug up while I was getting ready for this series and. It, at five on five, uh, the Rangers and the Penguins, uh, the Rangers gave up a hundred, 107 more shots and 426 more shot attempts over the course of the year. And they both gave up 129 goals against. So what I'm trying to say is that Henrik Lundqvist pretty much is the ultimate equalizer. Especially in this series, because yeah. you don't know who Pittsburgh is going to have in net. Right. And I, I, I think when you look at the forwards and the defensemen, Pittsburgh is the better team. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But goaltending can change a playoff series very quickly. And if the Penguins are going to go into this series and they don't have Marc-Andre Fleury and they don't have Matt Murray, which, you know, Murray doesn't look like he's going to be an option at least very early on. Fleury is still kind of not sure on. If they have to go in with Jeff Zadkoff against Henrik Lundqvist, um, that could derail a lot of things very quickly. And that could make a lot of this discussion irrelevant. Um, Because Zadkoff, I mean... You look at Zadkoff's overall numbers this season, you think, hey, you know, decent save percentage. Right. You know, looks pretty good. But when you look at it game by game, his first two starts of the year, he was outstanding. They were against Buffalo and Edmonton. Right. And then every start after that, I think the Penguins only won like two of the nine starts, and he had like a 904 save percentage. Yeah. So, you know, if you have to go seven, you know, best of seven with Jeff Zadkoff as your number one guy, that could change an awful lot very fast yeah well so what is the word on flurry because obviously he kind of ha- he has a concussion and with injuries like that it's really a, it's a fluid day-to-day thing and you can't really predict what he's going to be feeling like two three days from now but what is he slated to start game one or what's the what's the word that nobody he- knows yet uh, he's no practiced knows. on uh monday and tuesday right and all mike sullivan would say is he's day-to-day yeah. and you know nobody has um, you know, made a, a definitive answer on that. If I had, if I was, if I had to put money on it, I would say he probably ends up starting Game One, but that's not a given at this yeah. point. Oh man, now I might have to go back to the drawing board because I was right about <laughs> to ask you what, what your prediction is, and I've got Penguins in five. But I mean, if Zadkov's going to be starting all five of those games, I might have to reconsider. Yeah, you know. Even with Zadkov, I think they could probably get through this mm-hmm. um, because I just think the rest of the team is that much better. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Rangers have their own problems, especially, you know, it, you know, you don't know when Ryan McDonough is going to be back, for example. It sounds like he's going to be out at least a few games, um, if not the entire series, which is a big blow to them. So, you know, both teams kind of have important guys out. Um I, I think the the Penguins might have a little more confidence coming into this series where they actually can they, they've actually shown they can beat Henrik Lundqvist this season. Right. And you know the past two years he just owned them, and you know they finally had the uh, these past few games where they actually lit them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you know I, I think they can do enough of that that even if they have to go with Jeff Zadkoff, they can score enough to get through this. And I think they're just going to hold on to the puck enough to you know, not make Zadkoff that big of an issue. So it, it might take them an extra game or two. Maybe it goes to six or seven games. But I still think, you know, just looking at the overall team, the way the two teams play, I still think Pittsburgh has the edge here. Yeah. Well, the reason why I'd be a little bit concerned if Zadkoff actually has to play all these games is because, obviously, regardless, the Penguins are, are so much more dominant up front that they will control the puck, as you said. But the Rangers do have that sort of um, counterattack approach yeah. where really all it takes is like one or two, just where Rick Nash just breaks free and scores a couple goals, and all of a sudden Lundqvist is is standing on his head, and you just like, there's no going back from that. And, and that would worry me a little bit. But no, I, I think like five or six games still seems reasonable. Yeah, but you know that that option is very realistic too, which yeah. you just mentioned. Yes. I mean, it, it could easily happen. Um, so, you know, if Zadkov does have to play the whole series, that might change things a little for me. But I, I still think uh, Pittsburgh's the better team. Yeah, well, we see every year. There's always kind of at least one 
performance where a goalie just single-handedly influences a wonky result and this would definitely kind of fit that bill but uh, yeah i don't know it's the penguins just look so good and i think i saw that there's the stanley cup favorites in in some places that right now which is amazing where they were just a few months ago but it's kind of speaks to how dominant they've been oh i mean they've been outstanding and it they're they're the penguins again they're actually entertaining they're (laughs) fun to watch now um the the past you know the year and a half leading up to this it was just and even going back to the end of the dan bilesman era it was just they changed they they went too far in the opposite direction and i think in a lot of ways they went through the same type of thing the capitals went through right when uh they they lost that series to to montreal and they, they they had this you know 50 win team that just dominated everybody. And because they lost to a hot goalie in a seven game series, they thought they were doing something wrong and they totally abandoned who they were and what made them who they are. And it it set them back. And I I think that kind of happened to the penguins a little bit. And I think now they've kind of, they've gotten back to their strength and what they do well. But okay. Let's say that worst case scenario for the penguins in this series Zakov plays he plays poorly lundquist plays amazing the rangers get a few opportune goals and win this series in five or six games going into the summer do you think the penguins would approach this from a rational perspective and be like okay we found something good here let's just kind of go back and do this all over again next season or do you think there'd be some serious changes do you think they'd kind of overreact to it that's I don't know. I mean, that, that's that's tough to get a feel on that because you know the ownership is obviously Stanley Cup or bust, right. and that's that's you know been the thing. And there's there's been this constant disappointment that they haven't gotten back to the Stanley Cup final since they won it, and they've played all the cards to this point. They fired the GM, they fired the coach, they've gone through all this stuff. And I just wonder if another loss, no matter what the circumstances are, if that wouldn't just be the tipping point for something knee-jerk that sets them back even further. And I mean, I know it's it sounds crazy to say, but I almost think that these past few weeks without Evgeny Malkin would actually inspire that type of thing because it'd be easy to get the mindset, well, we won all these games without him. We scored all these goals without him. Right. You know, we don't need him. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can, you know, get, you know, four or five players and maybe save some cap space, but you know, those types of trades always end up coming back to bite you because, you know, you, you don't replace a guy like that. You don't find another Evgeny Malkin, uh, you know, just you know, those guys don't come through the door very often. And I'm, I'm of the belief I'd rather have one great player than two or three good players. Yes. Yeah, no, of course. Well, it's, I'm just glad that we're talking about the Penguins from, uh, <laughs> a perspective of them playing well and playing exciting hockey rather than all the drama that we've been discussing about them for the past few years. So it's a, it's a nice little change. Um, Adam, thanks for coming to chat, man. It was a lot of fun and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get you back on sometime later in the playoffs. Sounds good. Anytime. Cool. Talk soon, man. All right. And joining us to talk, uh, Red Wings lightning is, uh, my buddy Prashant Iyer. Prashant, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. How are you doing, Dimitri? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on. I feel like it's there's a lot to talk about with the Red Wings now after all this uh, Pavel Datsuk stuff came out recently. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a that was kind of a big shock for a lot of us, especially after Friedman reported it a couple weeks ago, and then nobody really knew where that source was coming from. And then all of a sudden, you have that story drop over the weekend, and I think it took everybody in Detroit a bit by surprise. Well, so the, I guess the big picture question I have is. Uh, not having watched him necessarily as closely as you have this season, how much does Pavel Datsuk have left in the tank as a player? And I, and I say that sort of acknowledging that I remember distinctly in the first 15 games of the year when they were without him, they were, I think, like a 47 or 48% possession team and really looked nothing like we'd uh, come to expect from this Red Wings team. And obviously some of that might have been a kind of a slower adjustment to Jeff Blashill and his systems, but it's a pretty big coincidence that as soon as he came back, they skyrocketed in that regard. Yeah, I think when you're evaluating Datsuk as an individual player, from his individual talent level, you've definitely seen over the last two, three years, um, a lot of what he used to do, a lot of his creativity start to drop off, particularly, I think the first area everybody noticed it was in the shootouts. He 
uh, would stop with his uh, his particular Datsuki and Deke where he would toe drag it back towards his skate and required a lot of edge work. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people started to suspect that he was having ankle issues at that point. But then as this season's gone on, um, from an individual standpoint, you just don't see him making the same moves that he used to be able to do. You don't see him winning the same puck battles. You don't see him hitting the tape as well as he used to on his passes. But ultimately, his possession numbers are still off the charts. Um, I mean, considering the the age of this guy, I think his possession numbers right now are somewhere around 57 58%. So he's still one of the top guys in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Significantly impacts uh, shot, or shots for Detroit. He's just not individually being the one that's putting the puck in the back of the net. I think this year alone, even though he hit 49 points, a majority of his points are power play points, yep. where he's got a little bit more time and space to work. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It looks like his 5-on-5 production has definitely dipped, especially from an efficiency perspective, and I guess that makes sense, right? Intuitively, like, the actual sort of uh, individual skills have eroded somewhat, but he's still such a smart hockey player that he puts himself in positions to succeed and help the team, but it might not necessarily be in, in, in with regards to points, it might be just kind of uh, territorial battles. Yeah, it's it's kind of territorial battles, and I think the big thing I still notice is a lot of defenders are still afraid to approach him, and that's part of the reason why his possession numbers have always been off the charts, is even though he's got this great individual skill, can make anybody look silly, um, it's kind of put defenders in a gray area where if I play up on him, he's going to embarrass me. If I give him space, he's going to embarrass me. So where do I actually play? And you still see a little bit of that indecision from defenders, and I think that indecision is making up for his lack of reaction time, his lack of skating ability, or his diminishing skating ability and still giving him that edge uh, from a possession standpoint. Listen, I mean, I, I don't fault him. I don't think I, after what, what, seeing him, what he did to Logan Couture a few years ago, I definitely wouldn't want to wind up being on the, uh, the end of that highlight reel. Yeah, I mean, he, there was the Logan <laughs> Couture highlight, and there's the one that people don't remember that was the game before we did the same thing to Mike Fisher and turned mm, him inside yep. down. You're talking about those are two decent players yes, that he's not uh, bad. Yeah, so, I mean, and he's done this to multiple people all across his career. So I just, it, it puts defenders in tough spots, and I still think they're reacting the same way. Okay, well, we'll talk more about Datsuk when we kind of spin the Red Wings forward, but I kind of wanted to talk more in the present, in the here and now with the, with the goaltending situation, because, and I say this fully acknowledging everyone that's kind of read my work or listened to my shows before knows that I'm a pretty big believer in Petr Mrazek, and I was definitely pumping the tires for him early in the year when he was admittedly, and kind of looking back at it now, riding pretty unsustainable percentages, but... Uh, were you surprised to see that Jimmy Howard kind of reclaim this spot, or were you banking on so such a long track record with him that you knew he'd eventually kind of regain his form? Uh, with Howard, you know, the thing that I've always noted with him is he'll give you a consistent level of play. And so even though we had that one stretch where for three months he looked bad, I think he only appeared in eight or nine games. And so if you look at his 10 or his 10 game rolling averages, they actually don't dip a whole lot. Um, but I was surprised to see that he actually reclaimed the starting position mm-hmm. solely because that the only way he was going to do that was if you had a significant drop in Mrazic's level. Because, right. I mean, there was a point in time back in January, I think he had gone 10-2-1 with a 9.50 save percentage yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the entire month. I mean, that's at all strengths, and you just don't have people doing that. And then something happened in February, and there was a rumor that he had a bit of a groin injury. And we weren't really sure how much happened. He missed a practice. He missed a couple of games. And then he came back, gave up five goals to Boston, which was the first time I think he had given up more than two in 13 games. And then you just weren't you weren't really sure. And then after that, it was just kind of a roller coaster ride for him all the rest of the way. Almost the exact same thing that happened to Howard the season prior. Mm. So I guess the interesting thing from the Red Wings perspective here is, of course, it kind of looks like now they're going to um, give Jimmy Howard a chance to kind of keep this momentum going for now until if he has a hiccup, they could obviously, of course, go back to Mrazic. But looking forward, I always thought it'd be fascinating to see what they do this summer with Howard because he's still even... You know, if they decide Mrazek is their guy, number one guy moving forward, it's kind of tough to swallow a $5.3 million cap hit for next, for three more years, I believe, with Howard kind of sitting on your bench. But he's still a, at least a, you know, a league average or a slightly above league average guy. And if you retain some of that money or even acknowledging that, uh, I think the actual dollar value of that contract depreciates with every year, uh, he might be an interesting candidate for a team like, I don't know, like the Flames or someone like that who's really goalie hungry. Do you think the this is actually sort of a blessing in disguise where it's kind of boosting his stock a little bit so they can actually kind of retrieve some value for him this summer? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the blessing in disguise is really twofold. One, Howard reclaiming the starting spot, putting together some decent numbers. I think he's had around a 925 save percentage his last few games, and then he's going to take the wings into the playoffs. And historically, over the last couple of playoff runs for Howard, he's been very good. There was the 2013 series against Chicago where he almost stole that series by himself. Uh, and so if he can put on a similar performance and, say, maybe extend the Lightning to seven games or even get past the Lightning – I think you could see teams like Carolina, who's probably going to let Ward go. They're going to have nobody there. You've got Calgary, who's uh, already told Hiller he's not coming back. They're going to need a goaltender. Um, You're going to have a couple of teams looking for goaltenders. So that's the first part of the blessing. But the second part is that Mrazic's a restricted free agent this Mm, summer. And had he sustained those numbers, you would have been really hard-pressed not to give him a big deal. And with these struggles, you kind of have leverage in the negotiations again saying, all right, we're going to give you another bridge deal, give you a three-year deal, maybe three, three and a half million AAV, and see if we can get him locked up for a couple of years, even though we know he's likely going to transition into being that more consistently high level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that seems about right. Um, I know I know you're a guy that kind of focuses a lot on on systems and does breakdowns in in different areas of the game. So you're probably the right person to ask this question. What how, what have you thought of the job Jeff Blashill has done in his first year in Detroit? Uh, so from early on, I was I was first impressed because he said he was going to come in, he was going to instill this a little more up tempo style. He wanted to get his defensemen more aggressive. He wanted to be harder on the puck battles off of when and you had offensive zone turnovers. And that's exactly how this team started out. And they started out terribly. You know, mm, you, like yep. you alluded to earlier, they had the 47% five on five uh, shot percentage. And so he quickly started to abandon that. And as the season has gone on, he's actually slowly reverted back into a system that Mike Babcock used to run, which doesn't have your defenseman playing as aggressively in order to give them time and space to turn around and chase dump-ins. It relies on your forwards retreating more quickly in the offensive zone off of a turnover to make sure you're not leaving your defenseman high and dry. And ultimately what he's doing is he's trying to protect his defensive group. Because if you look at it with Nick Cronwall, Jonathan Erickson, and Kyle Quincy, you've got three largely immobile defensemen, all who have significant hip, knee, or ankle injuries in their career that have required extensive surgeries, they're guys that just, you know, they may have the hockey IQ, but they just flat out can't skate anymore. And so I think Blaschel wanted to go for that system, realized he really only had one defenseman capable of playing it well, which was Brendan Smith, had to scrap that, go back to this lower event system that protects his defensemen, which also reduces the wing's scoring, reduces the wing's puck possession numbers, which we've seen a little bit of a tail off uh, as the season's been ending, but ultimately protects the defense and basically turns it into, if we get a chance, we might score, but we're going to give up less chances to you. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's playing, kind of playing into that. Um, I know Craig Custance wrote about it today, and I think you've written about it in the past, where uh, I forget who he talked to. It was, I think it was an anonymous source or something like that, but they were talking about how uh, Cronwall sort of looks lost in this new system and that um, they sort of need to make a change. Like, it's just not really working with him anymore, which is a shame because he used to be such an effective player, but... It feels like everyone other than, I guess, uh, Team Sweden's World Cup team has sort of noticed that he's not what he <laughs> used to be. And I don't know, just like what's happened there? Do you think it's just like a straight up uh, age-related decline where he just can't keep up physically anymore? I mean, I, I think it's a straight up age-related decline, exactly what you're saying. And, you know, while a lot of people are taking notice this year because he's been exposed in Blashville's system, this really has been going on the last two, three years. Um, just taking a look, like if you pull up uh, the Warrior charts for – Cronwell, you can see as you're breaking into the next third year segment, when you get to 2013, 2016, it's not pretty. And there never really was a point where it was pretty. I think after, you know, after that lockout shortened season, the 2012, 2013 season, I haven't seen him play the same way he used to. He's less aggressive with pinching. You don't see him stepping up at the offensive blue line anymore on the power play. He's lost all speed when trying to come through uh, the neutral zone on the drop pass. He's just, you can just see he's laboring out there. Yeah. Um, and there's times where he's skating and somebody who is not skating and is at a standstill will beat him, even though Cronwell's got a 10-foot start to the puck. And it's it's really a shame because you're, you're absolutely right. He used to be one of the most effective offensive defensemen in the NHL, fearsome hitter, 
really made a big impact on the game, but I think his knees have given out on him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shame to see. I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? He's like 35 years old or so. I mean, eventually it'll happen to anyone. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, the, it's it's funny, though, because I think that it's ironic in a sense, I think, because the Red Wings have for years under Kenny Holland and Mike Babcock, and now I guess they're taking a, under Jeff Blaschel as well, have been thought of as the, the model organization for drafting well and always having a, a great pipeline of young prospects. But I've always thought that was kind of ironic because they've also always been this organization that's kind of overvalued um I don't know if it's like veteran leadership or chemistry or what have you. And I mean, like they kept Danny Cleary around forever. And, and now you see a guy like, um, Luke Lindenning just playing way more than he probably should. It just seems like they have these blind spots for these certain kind of, uh, prototypical gritty forwards. Yeah. And you can really date that back all the way to the late nineties where you had Darren McCarty, you had Bob Prober, you had Joe Koser, you had Kirk Malty, Chris Draper, the grind line. That was the kind of, team that these uh that really broke the the stretch for the wings because i mean the wings hadn't won a cup since it was 1955 and all of a sudden to win in 1997 that's when this next generation of fans came and you had that grind line you had mccarty score score that goal on hextall in the 97 playoffs and a lot of people fell in love with that type of player and i think that's carried through um, over the last 20 plus years and it's kind of a shame because you know with all these players we're talking about Jonathan Erickson's got four more years on his contract. Yep. Nick Cromwell, I believe, has got three more years. Henrik Zetterberg, I believe, has got four or five more years. So you've got really, really long contracts handed well, out to you. And now you've got, like, what, six, seven years of Abdulkader to go? Yeah, you uh, seven years. The extension <laughs> hasn't even kicked in yet. Fantastic. Uh, and he's 30 years old. So yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, and then you've got, exactly like you said, Luke Glendening, an undrafted free agent who – I mean, it, it, there's not really a lot he gives you offensively. Yep. There's not really much he gives you defensively. He's just been uh, – he's just. it's exactly like in that quote from the, the Craig Custance article you cited earlier. Um, he, he basically likes players who just – nothing's going to happen on ice because if nothing happens, that means nothing bad happens. Um, yeah. and so, <laughs> I guess I mean, that's unfortunately been how this team has thought since – Lindstrom and Rafalski retired. It's been prevent the goals, and if we get a chance, we might score the goals, but don't give anything up. I have to say, I, was, I mean, were you a little bit surprised to see that the Wings and Kenny Holland stood pat at the deadline this year? Because it, it seems like there's been this annual tradition of uh, Holland giving up one or two sort of intriguing prospects or picks or what have you for uh, one of these older veteran guys to come in and help them keep that playoff streak going. And, and I was fully expecting it, but I just never came around this year. You know, and every year I'm fully expecting it. And this year I was fully expecting it given how many, you know, young forwards they've got that they're not willing to play. But at the same time, for me, I always felt like standing pat at the deadline was going to be the right move. And it kind of showed me that the team may be coming closer to valuing where they're at in the grand scheme of things a little closer. Because I think had they missed the playoffs, um, they might have had a better understanding saying, okay, we stood pat. We didn't try and sell. We knew we might have been able to contend, but now it's the summer. Let's start shedding, uh, shedding salaries, shedding whatever we can to to uh, start this rebuild. Well, I mean, I, I like a couple of their young guys as well, and, and I think you and I are probably number number one and two in the fan club of uh, Andreas Athanasiu. And absolutely, and uh, you, you just look at it any way you slice and dice it. I mean, he's just such an effective player. And of course, sometimes with with this sort of stuff, you need to be careful because you can't. I think people can get into trouble extrapolating rate stats if a guy's playing six or seven minutes a night, saying, "Oh, well, if he was playing fifteen, he'd be producing at this exact same rate." And that's not necessarily how it works, but it is a, usually a, kind of uses a pretty good sign for hmm, maybe we should give this guy a little more playing time and see if he can keep playing at a similar rate and i don't know why but for every whatever reason they just seem like super reluctant to giving him anything even close to 10 minutes a night and so i mean you're you're exactly right and i think it's balancing that okay the guy's playing six minutes a night and scoring like this if he plays 15 that doesn't mean he'll score like this right. but you want to see if he can do that so you got to give him the minutes and so what Blaschel and Holland have continuously cited over the last few weeks is that they have defensive concerns uh, mm. about Athanasiu and then Anthony Monta as well, who was sent down to the AHL, that they don't trust them. And it goes back to that point where they overvalued this veteran experience and uh, all of these different 
intangibles that we don't measure and they don't trust these young guys yet. And, you know, to be fair, the data does back up some of what they're saying. You know, when Athanasiu is on the ice using war on ice's uh, high, um, high danger chances against, mm-hmm. he's on the ice for the most. But at the same time, from my perspective, He's also the guy that's scoring the most for this team and driving the offense the most. And I'm willing to balance that if I'm coming out on the positive end. But I think it comes down to just levels of acceptable risk. And right now, Blaschel does not have a very high tolerance for risk, let alone any level of acceptable risk. I think that's why you see guys who take chances like Athanasiu, Manta, Brendan Smith. These are guys that aren't in the lineup or playing very little. Um because of that. Well, I don't think Blaschel's the only one. It feels like that's sort of a common thread between a lot of NHL coaches and teams around the league. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think lots of people have had this discussion that, you know, the level of acceptable risk for a lot of coaches is very, very low. Um, And that's unfortunate in some situations because you end up with players like Athanasiu here, Mike Hoffman in Ottawa, you know, with a lot of players like that who just don't get that ice time because there's either levels of acceptable risk that they're not willing to tolerate or they just, they've got something else that they want to manufacture about why they shouldn't play. Well, the thing with Athanasiu is, okay, let's even say that he is a risk in his own zone when he doesn't have the puck. And even if he's not scoring a lot of goals, just purely the rate at which he's drawing penalties and then not taking them himself is, I I still feel like such an inefficiency in this league where that's such a huge advantage if you have guys like that. And it makes sense just intuitively watching him. He's such a blur that I'm imagining that a lot of the penalties he's drawing are probably like hooking and tripping penalties where defensive players just can't really keep up with his pace. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think of all the penalties he's drawn, there's one roughing penalty that I can think of, but everything else is hook, hold, or trip because people can't keep up. Um, I mean, I sometimes I, I think about what he would look like in a system like Dallas and just see, I mean, he would be a blur. Yep. Um, I mean, no, nobody can really keep up with him. There's people who already believe he's faster than Larkin and Larkin won't set the NHL record this year. So uh, I really think he is someone who could be dynamite uh, if he were given that ice time opportunity and he like, you know, like Blaschel said, he, he believes there's some risk. There is some data suggesting he's a risk, but I'd rather see him play through it and learn instead of not getting the opportunity to play through it. Yeah. Well, as you said, maybe the fact that they didn't acquire another veteran at this trade deadline is a sign that they're slowly coming around to that and, and we'll see him get a longer leash in the years to come. But okay, let's spin it. Let's spin it forward a little bit and look at the lightning now, because I think that if they were fully healthy, this wouldn't even necessarily be a real discussion. I mean, they're such a loaded, deep team, but without the likes of Strom and Stamkos and maybe even a potentially banged up Tyler Johnson, they're definitely vulnerable and kind of ripe for the taking here. I'm just wondering, do you think, objectively speaking, this Red Wings team has enough to actually take them? I mean, looking on paper and looking at systems, there's there's stuff there that the Wings can do to be able to take advantage of this team. I mean, like you mentioned... No Stamkos, no Strawman for sure. You've got Hedman, who's been dealing with injury issues. You've got Johnson, who's been dealing with injury issues. You've got Kucherov, who's been dealing with injury issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like Stamp- that's a, that's Tampa's top five players, probably. Right. Um, so the, the opportunity is there. There are things that Detroit can do. They've played Tampa well this season, aside from the last game where they lost 6-2. But they split the season series 2-2. Two and two. I do think Detroit has the ability to take advantage of Tampa, I just don't see it happening though right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I think I mean it definitely I'm not very confident in it because just with so many of those injuries you never know how they're going to respond as a team, but I still think it's probably Tampa in in 5 or 6 games. I mean, I would have said the same thing last year though and it went they the Red Wings took them right to the brink there. So I guess really it's just a reminder that you never really know with this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think I think the biggest difference for me between last year's and this year's team is is uh, the system structure, and you had that in place with Babcock. You had ten years of uh, of that structure. You, everyone knew their role. Everyone knew where they were supposed to be defensively, um, and so that's a team that can. I'm okay just saying, all right, you're able to go out there, you can play, you can lock this down. But right now, this team is stuck between a hybrid of what Blasio wants to do and what Babcock used to do. And the structure just isn't there. It's not consistent. You don't get a consistent level from Detroit. And Tampa's uh, Tampa's defensive zone breakouts are just way, way too structured that even if they're missing those five guys, someone else is going to get plugged in and be able to execute that. Yeah. All right. Well, 
Prashant, man, thanks a lot for taking the time to come and kind of help break down this series. I uh, I know you've been doing uh, a lot of system stuff at Wingy and Motown. Do you want to kind of plug some of the work you're doing? Yeah, I mean, so this uh, this past week, what we've been working on is just a, uh, a systems series breakdown, trying to look at how each of the different parts of the Red Wings and the Lightning match up against each other. So we've looked at defensive zone breakouts versus four checks for both teams. And today we put out how Detroit's power play is going to work against Tampa's penalty kill. And tomorrow we'll finish it up with Tampa's power play versus Detroit's penalty kill and just kind of see if we can identify different areas where each team can take advantage of each other and what might be the series keys from a systems perspective. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to reading all that. And I know who knows, we'll see how these playoffs go and maybe we can get you back on down the road. Oh, that sounds great, Dimitri. Thanks for having me. Sweet. Talk soon, man. Before we get out of here, I want to give some quick love to Jen and Prashanth and Adam for taking the time to come on the PDO cast and help me preview those three series. I thought they provided a little bit of nice nuance and perspective that I couldn't have myself just because they spend so much more time covering those teams and thinking about all those uh, little inner workings amongst them. So hopefully we'll be able to do a similar sort of thing for the out of five remaining series. Uh, we're up against a little bit time-wise here. You're probably listening to this on a Wednesday, and that's why we tried to get those three matchups out while we could before they started. Uh, we've got some good plans in the works um just a matter of kind of putting it all together so until then the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich follow on twitter at dim filipovich and on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pdo cast mm-hmm.